You're listening to a recent Abbey Theatre talk. You can get more information on future talks in the series by visiting www.abbeytheatre.ie. Thank you very much. Uh, this was announced as a, an informal talk, but I didn't have time to prepare an informal talk, so... Uh, <laughs> so you'll just have to put up with one that's uh, written out. It's called Title Deeds. It's just spinning along what, what entitlement this particular scribe had to take up the Antigone play. So if you don't mind, I will, I will read it. 27 years ago, in May 1981, there was a gathering at once solemn and dangerous in the village of Tomb Bridge in Northern Ireland. The bridge at Tomb replaces, you'll be glad to know, the one where Ruddy McCorley was hanged in 1798, but you'll also be glad to know it still links County Antrim and County Derry. And uh, the crowd that were gathered in the centre of the village that evening had come mostly from County Derry, from the west bank of the Ban. They were there to meet a hearse that contained the body of a well-known County Derry figure. And once the, hearse, once the hearse arrived, they were going to accompany it back to a farmhouse on a bog road some six or seven miles away, where the body would be waked in traditional style by the family and the neighbours. They had come to tomb, in other words, to observe custom, to be present at the removal of the remains, as we say. But before the remains of this particular deceased person could be removed from tomb, they had first to be removed from the Mays prison, some 30 or 40 miles away. And for the first leg of that journey, the security forces deemed it necessary to take charge and to treat the body effectively as state property. The living man had, in fact, been in state custody as a terrorist and a murderer, in the language, a criminal lodged in Her Majesty's prison at the Maze, better known as the H-Blocks in those days. He was a notorious figure in the eyes of Margaret Thatcher's government, but during that month of, months of April and May 1981, he was the focus of the eyes of the world's media. His name was Francis Hughes, and although I didn't know him personally, I knew and liked other members of his family. They were our neighbours, and during the 1950s, I had walked the roads with his sisters and brothers, and in fact, had worked in the bog with his father, uh, Joe Hughes, who is still in his 90s to this day alive, as a matter of fact. Anyway, now, at this stage, Francis Hughes's world and mine were far apart. For the last 59 days of his life, he had been on hunger strike, one of that group of IRA prisoners ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for what were known at the time as the Five Demands. Basically, these constituted a claim by the prisoners to political status, a rejection of the demonising terminology of criminal, murderer and terrorists, and an assertion of their rights to wear their own clothes, to abstain from penal labour and to associate freely with their own cell, within their own cell block. Faced with all this, Margaret Thatcher and her government were predictably inflexible, and between May the 5th and August the 30th in 1981, 10 hunger strikers died, resulting in a steady issue of emaciated corpses from the gates of the prison and repeated 
processions of miles-long funeral crowds through the gates of cemeteries. This was the context in which the crowd of sympathisers waited for the hearse at Tomb Bridge, a crowd that naturally included family members and friends and neighbours in great numbers, and an even greater number of political supporters, enraged at what they saw as the hijacking of the body. Who owned the body, anyhow? By what right did the steel ring of the defence forces close round the remains of one who was son, brother, comrade, neighbour and companion? If ever there was a dramatisation of the contest between what Hegel called the instinctive powers of feeling, love and kinship, and on the other hand, the daylight gods of free and self-conscious social and political life, it was that evening when the hearse with its police escort arrived on the village street and the cordon surrounding it was jostled in fury and indignation by the waiting crowd. The surge of rage in the crowd as they faced the police that evening was more than ideological. It did, of course, spring from political disaffection, but it sprang also from a sense that something inviolate had been assailed by the state. You didn't have to be a supporter of the IRA to recognise that the intervention was something more fundamental and dismaying than a routine security measure. The, national the Nationalist Collective felt that the police action was a deliberate assault on what would be called in Irish their duchas. The critic Brendan Devlin has remarked that duchas is well nigh untranslatable, but he still offers this account. Quote, in an effort to explain it, Duchess, that is, in English, the Royal Irish Academy's Dictionary of the Common Old Gaelic Languages uses such terms as inheritance, patrimony, native place or land, connection, affinity or attachment due to long descent, due to, due to descent or long standing, inherited instinct or natural tendency. It is all of these things, Devlin adds, and besides, it's the elevation of them to a kind of ideal of the spirit, an enduring value amid the change and erosion of all human things. If we wanted a set of words to describe the feelings that motivate the heroine of Sophocles' Antigone, we could hardly do better than that. For Antigone, the daughter of Oedipus, is surely enthralled to patrimony, connection, affinity and attachment due to descent, to inherited instinct and natural tendency. And for her, all these things have been elevated indeed to a kind of ideal of the spirit and enduring value. If we wanted, what's more, to find a confrontation that paralleled the confrontation between her and King Creon, we could hardly do better than the incident on the street at Tombridge. No doubt many of you will have recognised that the quotation from Hegel which I employed in relation to that incident, comes from his discussion of Sophocles' tragedy. In particular, it applies to the conflict between Creon, who represents the law of the land, what Hegel calls the daylight gods of free and self-conscious social and political life, and Antigone, who embraces by contrast the law of the gods, what Hegel calls, in his version, the instinctive powers of feeling, love and kinship. And no doubt you also recognise that this has some bearing on the title I gave to the translation, The Burial at Thebes. 
From beginning to end, Sophocles' play centers on burial. First, it is a matter of that burial which is refused, refused to Antigone's brother Polynices, who Creon, king of Thebes, makes anathema because he was a traitor to his native city, came to attack it with an army from Argos. As a ruler responsible for security and good order in the city-state, in the polis, Creon's concern is the overall thing, and he can tolerate no exceptions. This, he declares in the translation that you have, this is where I stand when it comes to Thebes, never to grant traitors and subversive equal footing with loyal citizens, but to honour patriots in life and death. And this unbending attitude brings out, of course, the resistor in Antigone, whom the chorus calls in the original Greek, which alas I do not know, but the chorus calls her autonomos, a law unto herself. So she defies the order and gives ritual burial to her brother. The laws of the land, he famously avers, cannot overrule the law of the gods. And from this fundamental opposition, the whole action and catastrophe follow. Creon will not yield to any counsel until he is admonished by the prophet Tiresias, and by then it is too late. For burying her brother, Antigone is herself buried alive inside a rock-piled mound and hangs herself. Her prudent sister, Ismene, who refused to help her in her transgression, survives. But Creon's son, Haemon, Antigone's beloved, the man she is to marry, kills himself in order to be with her in the land of the dead. And in grief at all this self-murder, Haemon's mother, Creon's wife, Eurydice, also dies by her own hands. The result is a play that the ancients could well have entitled Creon, rather than Antigone, since Creon's suffering weighs equally in the tragic Sophoclean scale. And the many observations to this effect gave me the idea of changing the title of the version I eventually produced. At the beginning of 2003, when the Abbey invited me to do a version of Antigone for the centenary in uh, 2004, I was unsure if I could take it on. For a start, the play had been translated and adapted so often, had been co-opted into so many cultural and political arguments, it had begun to feel less like a text for theatrical performance and more like a pretext for debate, a work that was now more at home in the seminar room, really, than on the stage. Tragedy for Aristotle had been the imitation of an action, but Antigone, over the centuries, had become more or less, an accumulation of issues. The play, or its heroine, had been constantly adduced in the cause of liberation movements of many different kinds, in the cause of civil disobedience, of feminist resistance to the patriarchy, of prisoners of conscience, and it was also used to demonstrate the law and order reaction to all these things. In Ireland alone, for example, over the last uh, 25 years, we have had five productions, different versions of the play. Three by the poets Tom Paulin, Brenton Kennelly, Aidan Matthews, one by Conal Morrison, the playwright and director, and one by the classical scholar Marianne MacDonald, produced in collaboration with the distinguished South African playwright Athol Fugard. Still, as you can imagine, in a perverse kind of way, this constant revisitation 
of the play made the invitation all the more tempting. The fact that so many other versions were in existence has become part of the play's meaning and can be understood a guarantee. It's understood as a guarantee of the work's classic status. Italo Calvino uh, writes about this kind of thing and much else, and gets it all right, as usual, in a very substantial, wonderful, sprightly essay called Why Read the Classics? Uh, Calvino writes there, the classics are the books that come down to us bearing the traces of readings previous to ours and bringing in their wake the traces they themselves have left on the culture or cultures they have passed through. In the case of Antigone, we have, amongst others, most famously French traces left by the version done in the 1940s by the playwright Jean Ongui, and German traces left by a treatment it got from Bertolt Brecht. You have a South African trace, a very famous trace, in Athol Fugard's original play, The Island, where the action of that play involved the production. On the stage, there is represented the production of Antigone in a maximum security prison. And this was put on in, in uh, Cape Town at a, at a theatre called The Space, which had, had a view from the space of Robben Island, where at that time uh, Nelson Mandela was, a, was in the prison. So that was obviously rights and wrongs and state control and so on were at the centre of affairs there. You also now have a Polish trace deriving from a production mounted in Poland in 1984 by the film director Alexander Wajda, a production which pointed up the analogies between Antigone's resistance in Thebes and the resistance of the solidarity workers at that time in the shipyards of Gdansk. All this, of course, has to be said is a far cry from the way I was first taught Greek drama, and I'm sure many in the audience were taught it, in undergraduate lectures which focused on the difference between classical and then Shakespearean tragedy. All those old discussions of the plays in relation to Aristotle's poetics, much ado being made of the unities of time and place, the central importance of plot, the precise meaning of the word catharsis, and so on. And yet, to remember that early schooling is to concede the truth of Calvino's very first definition of a classic, namely, quote, a book of which we usually hear people saying, I am rereading and never I am reading. <laughs> My own rereading of Antigone began in earnest 40 years ago this year, in 1968, in the month of October. On the fifth day of that month in the city of Derry, a civil rights march which had been banned by the Unionist authorities was baton charged by the Royal Ulster Constabulary. It was a nakedly repressive reaction, and it set in motion a chain of events which could be described in the words of Tacitus as having created a desolation, which then eventually we were able to call a peace. Anyhow, after the attack on that particular march, other large protest meetings were organized throughout the north, including one in Belfast a week and a half later, basically a student march from Queen's University where I was then a lecturer. I remember us sitting in the street, having been halted by a cordon of police who were there because the main city square, the city hall place, 
had been occupied by a counter-protest organised by, guess who, the Reverend Ian Paisley. In those days, Paisley's law and order bully boys could call the tune and the police would fall into line and the rest of us could like it or lump it. It was humiliating and enraging and as we sat there in the broad glum reaches of Linen Hall Street, supervised by the broad glum faces of the RUC, there even came a point when I had to turn myself into a kind of academic crayon, which is to say I had to restrain some students from making a charge at the police lines. And it's probably worth mentioning here that among those students, among those ones I restrained, was she or her who would go on to be the Antigone of her time in Northern Ireland, a passionate young protester, then a student at Queen's, Bernadette Devlin. Anyway, one result of all that was an article I contributed to the BBC's current affairs magazine, The Listener. In the issue of October the 24th, I wrote about that student march and sit-down and about other matters, including the demands of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association for reform of local government and an end to discrimination in the allocation of houses and jobs. And I ended with an allusion to the song Danny Boy, better known in that part of the world as the Derry Air. And the final sentence of the paragraph revealed my sympathy for the Antigone party, if you like. It suggested, quote, the new Derry Air sounds very much like we shall overcome. It was in that same issue of the listener that Antigone was finally sprung from her old place in the syllabus and took her place decisively in all future thinking about the developing, developing political association, uh, situation in Northern Ireland. She and everything she stands for were invoked in an article of seminal importance by Conor Cruz O'Brien, who was still at that time the holder of the Albert Schweitzer Chair of Humanities at New York University. Three years earlier, in December 1965, O'Brien had been arrested because of time he too had spent sitting down in the street in the distinguished company of Dr. Benjamin Spock. This happened in the course of an event which his wife Moira has described as a highly respectable protest outside the induction center in Manhattan a protest which was meant to obstruct the progress of recruitment for the war in Vietnam. But now, here was O'Brien observing and pondering the significance of these new sit-downs by students in the north of his own country, highly aware of the righteousness of their cause, yet highly sensitive also to the ominousness of the situation. O'Brien's article, which I should remind you again, was written in 1968, uh, begins with a resume of the plot of Sophocles' tragedy, emphasizing how inexorably Antigone's non-violence leads to a violent and bloody end. And this turn of theatrical events, O'Brien pointed out, could be paralleled by the way non-violent political protest eventually would lead to the political murders of Gandhi and Martin Luther King, among others. But the article came alive in a particularly urgent way for me and my contemporaries when it proceeded to focus on the situation in Northern Ireland and in particular on the gerrymandered city of Derry. O'Brien argued that the search by the Catholic majority of the city for full civil rights, for a release from the status of second-class citizens, would mean that these people, i.e. the citizens of Derry, would have to brace themselves against what he called shocks to come. And he went on. 
These people know that much more is involved than the correction of an electoral anomaly. It is a question of changing historic relations between the conqueror and the conquered, something not likely to happen without violence. This was a stark statement of the realities of the situation and a true premonition of what was indeed to come. And it allowed O'Brien to ask the kind of question that is many asks in the play. Would the removal of the disabilities of Catholics in Northern Ireland be worth attaining at the risk of precipitating riots, explosions, pogroms, murder? Nevertheless, having raised that doubt, O'Brien went on at that stage to allow Antigone to have her say, quote, Antigone will not heed such calculations. She is an ethical and religious force, an uncompromising element in our being, as dangerous in her way as Creon, whom she perpetually challenges and provokes. Peace depends upon the acceptance of civil subordination, since the powerful will use force to uphold their laws. We should be safer without the troublemaker from Thebes, and that which would be lost if she could be eliminated is quite intangible, no more perhaps than a way of imagining and dramatizing man's dignity. It is true that this may express the essence of what man's dignity actually is. In losing it, man might gain peace at the price of his soul. End of quote. Some time ago, in answer to a question about the use of the classics at the present time, I said that consciousness needs coordinates. We need ways of locating ourselves in cultural as well as geographical space. And if I'd had time, I could have given the interviewer this rather long account of Cruz O'Brien's discussion of Antigone, because this was something which did indeed give me and others at that time coordinates that have been helpful ever since. But I could equally well have uh, answered the question by quoting two other definitions of the classics offered by the ever-resourceful and entertaining Calvino, as follows. Quote, the classics are books that exert a peculiar influence, both when they refuse to be eradicated from the mind and when they conceal themselves in the folds of memory, camouflaging themselves as the collective or individual, as the collective or individual unconscious. And again, quote, a classic does not necessarily teach us anything we did not know before. In a classic, we sometimes discover something we have always known or thought we knew, but without knowing that this author had said it first, or at least it, that this author is associated with it in a special way. And this too is a surprise that gives a lot of pleasure, such as we always gain from the discovery of an origin, of a relationship, of an affinity. And that, I'm sorry to say, is the end of my citation of the Boyle Calvino. Still, if I have uh, finished with Calvino, I have not finished with the topic, the translation of a classic. I have said enough, I am sure, to indicate that my agreeing to provide a new version of Antigone was more than a conditioned response to a venerable work of antiquity, more than a reverential bow to the cultural authority of the Western canon. But I also, I hope I've said enough to substantiate that earlier claim that by now the play has become, it's been so translated and so adapted, has been so co-opted into many cultural and political arguments that it has begun to function 
less as a text from the theatrical repertoire and more as a pretext for debate. And I have said enough, I think, in relation to the original Abbey production when it came out, about the way Creon's overbearing in relation to Polynices paralleled at that time George Bush's White House gang overbearing the UN and going to war in Iraq, and about the way Creon's silencing of the chorus's doubts about the justice of his, of his actions paralleled Bush's silencing of the democratic opposition, democratic with a capital D and a small d, telling them, in effect, that if they were not for him, they were against him, and so on and so forth. Eventually, however, I had the good fortune to discover a way of springing Antigone free of the seminar room of contemporary politics and of the opinion columns, and letting her come forth in all her emotion and rhetoric on the stage. Once again, the heroine of a great European masterpiece, a work a tremble with passion, with the human pity and terror it possessed in its original cultural setting. And a work I am very happy to report which has been given a second welcome here at the Abbey and a definitive production downstairs in the Peacock. A production where the producer, Patrick, director Patrick Mason has reached deep into the play's intellectual and emotional substance and has managed to bring forth in the staging of the action and in the tuning of the language, managed to bring forth the imaginative riches that were always there lodged in that ancient text. A production also where every actor in the cast thoroughly realizes the potential of his or her role in the tragedy. I was finally able to enter the kingdom of Thebes, as it were, when I discovered a way in through the eye of an Irish needle. And I discovered this entry point in the nick of time, the night before I was due to tell the Abbey Theatre's artistic director whether or not I would take on the commission. I was still paging through other translations one older and one more recent. I've never, as I say, studied ancient Greek, so I was going to be relying on scholars such as Richard Cleverhouse Jebb, who did the standard, very accurate Victorian translation, slightly fusty but very helpful. And I was also relying on the Antigone and the Loeb classical library, more modern. In Jebb's prose, for example, Antigone's first speech turns out like this. Sister is many, my own dear sister, do you know of any ill of all those bequeathed by Oedipus that Zeus does not fulfill for us too while we live? There is nothing painful, nothing fraught with ruin, no shame, no dishonor that I have not seen in your woes and mine. And in Hugh Lloyd Jones's more recent version, done for the Loeb Library, also in prose, those lines are rendered thus. My own sister is many, linked to myself. Are you aware that Zeus, ah, which of the evils that come from Oedipus is he not accomplishing while we live? No, there is nothing painful or laden with destruction or shameful or dishonoring among your sorrows and mine that I have not witnessed. The sense conveyed by both these translators is the same. We know that there is a sisterly relationship, a shared awareness of family history, and it soon becomes clear that some impending event is causing them anxiety and panic. Yet the anxiety and panic are not really there in the pace or the pitch or the diction of the prose. 
The prose, moreover, is construing something that was originally in verse. And verse drama, even in translation, surely needs the meaning to be transformed into a metrical and musical register. Unless I felt I could get the panic into the pace of the speeches, I felt I couldn't proceed. It might be all right to convey the content of, I might be able to convey the content of the text, but if I couldn't get the pace right or the panic in, I would remain what the Russian poet Ozef Mandelstam once called a uh, mere purveyor of the paraphrasable meaning. Thanks, Ozef. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, suddenly and from nowhere, more or less, I heard a note that wakened me up. The theme and the tune coalesced. What came into my mind, or more precisely into my ear, were the opening lines of that famous 18th century Irish poem, Crino Arthi Leire. Mogragu Dangan Hu, Lada Waka Hu, Ekunti and Waragi, Hugmahu in Iraditch, Hugmahri Titan of Ditch, Gelius of Caraldat, Awada Wallalat. I heard this, as I say, as if from nowhere. But in fact, of course, it had been lying in wait in, happily in the unconscious, just waiting the right moment to come along. And it had the right register, and one that sprang from circumstances similar to those in which Antigone found herself. The Lament for Art O'Leary is a poem which was uttered by O'Leary's widow, Evelyn Divney Connell, uttered spontaneously in the original first utterance, over the dead body of her husband. And this body, like the body of Polynices, had been left exposed, unattended to, cut down by enemies and abandoned. O'Leary, who was killed in 1773, was a proud and defiant pre-emancipation Catholic, a provoker of the English squirearchy in his home district in County Cork. His end came when he was set upon by a group of soldiers and left dead in the roadside after which his horse ran on home with blood on the bridle. This is the opening of Evelyn Dove's poem in Frank O'Connor's translation, plus some lines a little bit later on. My love and my delight, the day I saw you first beside the market house, I had eyes for none, nothing else, I had eyes for nothing else, and love for none but you. I left my father's house and ran away with you, and that was no bad choice. You gave me everything. My love and my mate, had I never thought dead till your horse came to me, till I found you lying by a little furze bush without pope or bishop or any priest or cleric to whisper you a prayer, only an old, old woman and her cloak about you and your blood in torrents. Because of the pitch of that voice, because the lament was for a beloved left lying without the last rites, and because I needed a meter to make love and panic between the sisters pulse with a certain ritual force, I picked up the note again of the three-beat line. And I got started that evening before I went down to see Ben Barnes on the first speech. Ismene, quick, come here. What's to become of us? Why are we always the ones? There's nothing, sister, nothing. Zeus hasn't put us through just because we are who we are, the daughters of Oedipus. And because we are his daughters, we took what came, Ismene, in public and in private, hurt and humiliation, 
but this I cannot take. Admittedly, there is nothing conventionally or obviously poetic about the language there. The thing is plain, it's bare of figures of speech, but the three-beat line established a tune that I felt I could carry and that the sisters could carry. And with that first tune established, it was easy enough to play variations. The speeches of the chorus, for example, almost spoke themselves in an alliterating four-beat line, one that echoed very closely the metre of Anglo-Saxon poetry that I had been damn familiar with as I translated 3,182 lines of it in Beowulf. So I had a sense of what an Anglo-Saxon line sounded like. But it's also very good Anglo-Saxon line for, for traditional wisdom, for laying down the kind of folk wisdom law, for homiletic expression and, and uh, instruction. And that's the kind of thing the chorus does so well in Greek drama. So the hymn to victory, which is the first utterance we hear from the chorus, is composed in general in lines with four stresses, with the stresses pointed up and linked together by alliteration. Glory be to brightness, to the gleaming sun, shining guardian of our seven gates. Burn away the darkness, dawn on Thebes, dazzle the city you have saved from destruction. Argos is defeated, the army beaten back, all the brilliant shields smash into shards and smithereens, and so on. And needless to say, the traditional five-beat blank verse line, the iambic pentameter with its conventional titum, 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 that seemed right for Creon. Creon, after all, is somebody who must, in every sense, hold the line. So I tuned his speeches more or less to that regular blank verse norm. Our ship of state was very nearly wrecked. It doesn't go quite like that, but our ship of state was very nearly wrecked, but the gods have kept her safe. So, friends, well done. You stood by Oedipus, you stood by Oedipus when he was at the helm, and when his son stepped in to take his place, you stood by them as well. And now they are gone. And I, as next of kin to those dead and doomed, I'm next in line. The throne has come to me. Well, I'm next in line. The throne has come to me. But actually, it's hidden there. I'm next in line. The throne has come to me. So, to sum up and conclude. <laughs> Antigone is poetic drama, but commentary and analysis had dulled it. I wanted to do a translation that would be true to the original insofar as it would be as much a musical score as a dramatic script, one that actors could speak plainly or intensely as the occasion demanded, but one that still kept faith with the ritual formality of the original. I've talked a good deal here about the political and cultural resonances which the text possesses and possesses for us in Ireland, and about the historical circumstances which I felt entitled me to give the play a new title. Equally, however, I could have talked about how beautifully all these themes and motifs and artistic requirements are being realized in the current production here in our National Theatre. I'm glad, therefore, to have this opportunity of saying thanks in public to Fiach McAneil for his faith in my version of the play and for his decision to revive it. I'm also glad to say that I was never more elated in the theatre than I was this past Tuesday on the first night. The musical score of the script was served by an ensemble where each player had the pitch and register of a very well-tuned instrument. 
There was no misalliance, as there often is, between the metrical structure of the lines as heard on the inner ear and the pacing and intonation of those same lines when they are heard spoken aloud. It was as if the words were being as if the words were being discovered spontaneously on the spot by the characters, and the characters equally were discovering themselves in the utterance of the words. And all this was due not only to the gifts of individual actors, but to the profound attention which Patrick Mason brought to every linguistic and dramatic nuance of the script. And I have to say also that the costuming, the lighting, music departments added with great tact, a very sure and delicate touch. As director, however, Patrick Mason served the text as much by his erudition as by his intuition as a, as a man of theatre. Just as he and the cast have served the literary ideals of the founders of this theatre. For W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory and John Millington sing, ritual formality of presentation and emotional intensity of utterance were paramount, and those are indeed qualities which distinguish the work being done downstairs in the Peacock. To put it another way, the current production, it seems to me, manages to fulfil Yeats's ambition for dramatic performance, his wish for an experience so potent that it would, quote, engross the present and dominate memory. It's a production, moreover, which reminds us of the persistence of those instinctive powers of feeling, love and kinship, which authority must respect if it is not to turn callous. Powers which inspired the one whom Conor Cruz O'Brien called, not without admiration, the troublemaker from Thebes. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You'll find many more Abbey Theatre talks available to listen back to along with details of future talks in the series by visiting our website www.abbeytheatre.ie.